Right, well, turn with me, please, to John's Gospel and chapter 5. Verse 40 of chapter 5 reads like this. The Lord Jesus Christ said, You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Now, one of the strange things about Christianity is the remarkable unwillingness so often of men and women to actually come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know as Christian people that the Lord Jesus Christ is the saviour of all who trust in him. And what that means is he forgives sins, he transforms lives, he becomes our saviour and Lord through life to keep us, and finally he takes us home to glory. When he does that, and he does that freely for all who believe in him. Isn't it remarkable and strange that people so often seem so disinterested and so unwilling? Now, there are a number of reasons for that. We can't go after them all this morning. One of the reasons is, and you hear it quite a lot these days, are oh, there's not enough evidence that it's true. Now, interestingly, in this passage, the Lord Jesus talks about this from verse 31 and following, where he talks about, well, John the Baptist witnessed of me. The works that I do from my Father, they witness about me. The Scriptures witness about me. He gives a number of strands of evidence to undermine that objection. But that's not what I want us to think about this morning. What I want us to think about this morning is another objection, which is sadly all too prevalent. And that's this. Why does the Lord Jesus Christ say that I have to come to him if I'm going to have life? This exclusiveness, this claim on the part of Jesus Christ that he and he alone is the saviour who is able to give life, I don't like that, people say. That exclusiveness would seem to be arrogant, but also, doesn't it seem to be a little bit unfair? I mean, what about all the other religions of the world? What about the real efforts that people make in their lives to do good? Isn't the Lord Jesus Christ just dismissing all of that? I think that's a very, very important question. And it's something that it's right that we stop and think about now because it wouldn't be appropriate for anybody to fall into this trap. If I never become a Christian, it's not my fault, it's God's fault. And it's God's fault because this idea that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the saviour, it just seems so unfair. See, I've noticed over the years that in some situations we can be very ready to blame God. We blame God when things go wrong in our lives. We blame God when things happen that we don't understand. But we can also blame God if we are not saved. And in the context of the Bible, we have no grounds whatsoever for doing so. The teaching of the Bible is very, very plain. If a person is not saved, if they are lost... It isn't God's fault. It's entirely their own fault. But the remarkable thing is that God, in his grace and mercy, 
has intervened and stepped in through his son, Jesus Christ, so that whoever simply comes to him might have life. See, the only way to have real, spiritual, everlasting life is by coming in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, you get it in a few places. In verse 21, it's the Son who gives life to whom he will. Okay. In verse 24, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. Life comes from Christ. In verse 25, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. See, verse 25 is a reference to now. It's not a reference to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you just look at it with me, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That's now. That's talking about the voice of Christ in the gospel. If you hear his voice and respond, you live. Later on, he says in verse 28, the hour is coming. Notice, not and now is, the hour is coming. When all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. On the last great day when Jesus Christ returns, everyone will hear his voice and stand before him. True. But in verse 25 today, the Lord Jesus Christ speaks, and whoever hears his voice and responds in simple faith will live. Now just to be clear about this, there's no doubt that the Bible teaches the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ. That Christ and Christ alone is the saviour of men and women. John 14 and verse 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4 and verse 12. The apostles are preaching. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which we must be saved. And so it goes on and on and on. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is the one who gives life. But is it fair? And is it right? See, to understand that question, we've got to get a handle on what it, what it really means, what the Lord Jesus Christ does. What's so special about him that he can be in this exclusive position? And very simply, that's this. The Lord Jesus Christ alone is the saviour of men and women because Christ alone can deliver us from death and give us life. What do we mean by death? Well, the Lord Jesus Christ says that to have life, we have to come to him. And so the implication of that is that if we don't come to him, we don't have life. Rather, we are in a state of death. John talks about that in his first letter, 1 John 5 and verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't have life. He's not talking about physical death. All of us are physically alive and here this morning. It's not that. 
he's talking about the kind of death that God referred to in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve in Genesis 2. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And you know what happened in the day that they ate of the fruit? They didn't die physically, but they did die. And that state of death is a state of death which is true of every man and woman who is outside of Jesus Christ. What does it mean? Four things. Legal death. All men and women stand under condemnation before God, our judge. The holy God looks at us. He knows the truth about us. It's all recorded in the books of heaven. God made man upright. He desires that we live in the right way. And bear in mind, the right way is the right way, isn't it? Faithfulness to God, honesty and kindness to others. A life characterized by love. A life that can't really be criticized. Who can criticize the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who lived as men and women should live. But when God looks at us, he doesn't see that. He sees things which are different. And because of that, God records it all in the books of heaven, and we stand under a sentence of death. In John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God condemned already. They stand under a sentence of death. It was said that in San Quentin prison in the 1970s, when a man on death row had to walk across the courtyard to the courthouse, he would be surrounded by six guards. And rather than wearing the normal blue denim uniforms that the prisoners wore, he wore a different brown uniform. And as he walked across the courtyard, the loudspeakers boomed out repeatedly, dead man walking, dead man walking. He's not dead physically, but he's dead under the law. The sentence has been passed, but the sentence has not yet been executed. Now, why is this? It's a very hard thing to say, isn't it? That men and women, men and women like us, just normal people, in the eyes of God, are legally dead. That there's a sentence of condemnation on us. But that's what the Lord Jesus Christ says. Why is it? The reason is sin. Romans chapter 6, Paul says, the wages of sin is death. It's the free gift of God that's eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin is death. You follow sin and sin pays you back. But it pays you back with death because it makes you guilty before God. Okay. Ezekiel 18. The soul that sins shall die. And bear in mind there's justice here. The son won't bear the guilt of the father. The father won't bear the guilt of the son. No, no. The wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. God sees us and he knows us and he doesn't condemn us for being good. Of course not. God judges sin. So the vitally important question is this, not am I better than I was yesterday or am I as good as so-and-so, 
but am I as good as I should be in the eyes of God? Or does God have a case against me? And if God has a case against me, which is perfect and clear and balanced and just, how can I ever stand in a judgment? Dead man walking. The second aspect of this death is spiritual death. Death involves corruption, doesn't it? We know that when a body dies, it breaks down. You see it with Lazarus. He's been in the tomb four days. By now, he stinks, that kind of idea. The body breaks down. But the reality of men and women who are outside of Christ is that it's not just that we're guilty before the judge, but there's something kind of wrong on the inside. And you notice that. Why do people sin? Well, there can be all sorts of temptation, all kinds of provocation, all kinds of bad education. But the reality is, to bring us to sin, that resonates with something inside us. It touches on a wrong understanding and a wrong desire. There's a problem in the heart, which is why the Lord Jesus says that a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. The bad things in our lives point to the problem on the inside. See, our understandings are affected. People find it very, very difficult to understand the truth in the Bible. It seems to be a closed book. We have no taste for it. But isn't it interesting that we often have a taste for lots of other unworthy things? Why is that? Our understanding has been darkened and corrupted. It's a symptom of spiritual death. Our desire why is it that the main desire in the lives of men and women isn't to know God and isn't to please God? Why is it that we don't delight naturally in moral purity and wholesomeness? Why is it that we desire things that are contrary to the will of God and that we know are bad for us? I heard a little story once about a frog and a scorpion. A scorpion's on the bank of the river and he wants to cross to the other side and the frog is swimming past so the scorpion shouts, can you give me a lift to the other side? And the frog is paddling away and he says, I don't trust you, he says. If you hop on my back and I take you across the river, you might sting me and I might die. And the scorpion says, don't be stupid. If I sting you and you die, I'll fall into the river and I'll drown. So the frog thinks about it and he says, okay. So the scorpion hops on his back and they set off across the river and halfway across the river, the scorpion stings him. And the frog says, what are you doing? Now I'm going to die, and you are going to drown. And the scorpion says, it's just my nature. It's a terrible thing, isn't it? But how often have we found ourselves in situations where we know the outcome is bad, and we know the thing is wrong? And we even sometimes know that before God, we would have no answer. But something in us motivates us to do it anyway. It's a symptom of spiritual death. Our consciences. Why is it that our consciences sometimes let us get away with things? Think up excuses that allow us to have our own way. 
our wills. Why is it that we don't choose the good, but so often deliberately choose the things that we know are unworthy and wrong? Our memories. Why do we hold on to things, evil things, and dwell on them in our memories? And yet when we think back in our lives, we let so much of the goodness that we've experienced, so much of the goodness of God to us, slip away. See, what the Bible tells us is there's a spiritual death. That when sin first affected us, it didn't just come to us from the outside, but it somehow got inside of us, into our hearts. And that colours the way that men and women live, so that we don't love the Lord our God. We don't love our neighbour as ourselves. We don't delight in Jesus Christ there's a spiritual death. And if we're going to be saved, that spiritual death has to change. Paul talks about it in Ephesians 2. You, he says to the Christians in Ephesus, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. You're talking about spiritual death. What does it look like? Let me tell you, said Paul. The course of the world, the provocation of the devil, the lusts of the flesh, the desire of the flesh of the mind, and it leaves you under the wrath of God. That's the problem. There's a spiritual death from which we need to be saved. There's a third thing. Relational death. I don't know if you've ever uh, been part of or seen a serious bust up in a family. But sometimes people will say, never darken my door again. You are dead to me. You know that kind of thing? You were dead to me. This relationship is over. It's finished. Think of the prodigal son. Father, give me the portion of the goods that belong to me. He's not entitled to that portion of goods until his father dies. It's his inheritance. Father, give them to me today. You are dead to me. The only value you have to me is what I can get out of you. But I'm not interested in you. See, isn't it true that by nature, so often, we live our lives separate from God. God isn't in our thinking. He doesn't colour our lives. We don't talk to him. We don't take his counsel. He doesn't influence us. There's an empty chair at God's table. We are not there. We've walked away. And the reason for that Our sin is separated between us and God. It's very interesting that in Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. It isn't that he doesn't believe there's a God. It isn't that he doesn't know there's a God. But he's telling himself in his heart, there's no God. Because as far as he's concerned, he's going to live without God. Relationally, he's dead. He and God they've been separated. Maybe some of you have experienced that. 
You've been in situations in your life where you say, I don't know what to do. And I don't know where I can find help. And I don't really think I can pray because I don't know if there's a God out there who knows and who cares and who listens and who will help. I don't know that. I don't know if there is anyone on the throne of the universe, anyone who's willing to listen. Why is it that we find ourselves so far from God? It's a sign of death. And the last thing, eternal death. Now, if we die in this situation of being legally dead and spiritually dead and relationally dead, we pass into eternity where that death comes to fruition. And what that means is the legal sentence which is passed, dead man walking, comes to fruition. The sentence is enacted. 2 Thessalonians 1. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. The sentence comes. Spiritual death. The corruption that spiritual death has produced in us comes to fruition. And we spend an eternity in opposition to God. We spend an eternity with hearts which still don't love him and which still don't love others but which are taken up with that kind of opposition and corruption and badness. The worm that doesn't die, it's an interesting description in the Bible, it seems to me to be a picture of conscience. It bites away and it bites away and it reminds you and it reminds you and it's unpleasant, but you can't shake it off. It's a worm that doesn't die and for all eternity we live with the consequence of our opposition to God himself. And relational death, that's finally sealed when the king says to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. He's walked away from me, and now he's away from me forever. See, this is the issue. Why is it that the Bible insists on the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? That Christ and Christ alone is the way to God. The reason is this. Death. It doesn't matter what religion we follow. And it doesn't matter what other people think of us. The problem is that in the eyes of God, we are dead. And the Lord Jesus Christ alone is the saviour. Because he's the only one who can deliver us from death. And who can give us life. The exclusivity of Christ is rooted in the fact that our need as men and women is so great. We have to have someone who can deliver us from the sentence of death. A religion can't do that. We need a saviour. We have to have someone who can change our hearts. Being, trying to be good doesn't do that because the problem's still on the inside. We need someone to give us a new heart. We have to have someone who can bring us to God. And telling us about God doesn't do that. We have to have someone who can restore that relationship and who can bring us back to him. The Lord Jesus Christ brings life. Would you like to have life? That's an important question, isn't it? Would you like to have life? 
Some of us go through periods in our lives of ill health. Or we get older and we find our physical strength failing. And we think back to the days when we were vibrant and we felt alive. It's a great thing. But what about this kind of life? Wouldn't you like to know that you've been forgiven? That God has nothing against you. And that on the last great day he'll welcome you home. Wouldn't you like to know that your heart can be changed and the Lord can begin to overcome those things in your life which are so unworthy and wrong and he can start to put you back together? Wouldn't you like to know that there's a way for the Father to accept you as his child? For him to draw you back into his presence and to seat you at the table in God's family? Wouldn't you like to belong and know that you are loved and that you are loved with a love that will never let you go? That's what comes with Jesus Christ. Let's touch on it. Legal life. If you have a man who has been condemned to death, justly, he's got two ways of getting out of it. His first way is to kill the judge and overthrow the entire legal system. But you can't kill God. And you can't overthrow his perfect justice. There's a second way. A substitute acceptable to the judge takes your place and dies your death. Substitution is the heart of the Christian gospel. The sacrifices of the Old Testament are all pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. An animal was taken, a man put his hand on the head of the sacrifice and confessed his sins, and the sacrifice was killed in his place. It's a picture of what happens at Calvary. When the Lord Jesus Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree, he paid a price for them in full and cried out, it is finished. What's happened there? There's a way for death to be taken away. There's a way for guilt to be removed, for punishment to be taken, so that guilty men and women can be set free. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ did this willingly. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. The Son of Man has come into the world to seek and to save the lost. Nobody had to twist his arm. He loves men and women like us. But you see, the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ is rooted in this. Rituals can't die for you. Religions can't die for you. Good deeds can't die for you. You need one who is a perfect man and more than a man that can bear the sins of men and women and pay the price in full. And in three hours on the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ did it and he did it all. There was no other good enough to pay the price for sins. He only could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. And you know the result? And in his death, our death, died with him on the tree. And a great number by his blood will go to heaven made free. In place of legal death, there is legal life. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the only saviour. 
because only he can deliver us from condemnation. Second thing, spiritual life. When a person becomes a Christian, the Lord puts new life on the inside. Remember Ephesians 2? You, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. What that means is a new love and a new power comes into us and we're changed on the inside. A love of Christ and a love of holiness, a power to change, to change our lifestyle and to follow him. And that change affects all of us. It affects our understanding. People say the Christian life is boring. All our church and praying and Bible reading and singing, I don't see why anyone would want to live like that. Do you know why? It's because they're dead. A corpse cannot feel the warmth of the sun and he can't hear the beauty of the music. But when there's life, things change. When there's life, we begin to love the Lord our God and his words are sweet to us and his promises give us hope. Our desires change. We begin to love him and live for him who died for us. Our conscience changes. We know that our consciences are washed in the blood of Christ and we can rejoice. Our will changes. We start to hear his voice and to follow him. Our memories change. And in the midst of all the other things we remember about our past lives, we remember this. He loved me and he gave himself for me. And the day when I first came simply to Jesus Christ was my rebirth day and it was the greatest day of my life the day when the Lord Jesus Christ stepped in and he gave me life relational life when a person becomes a Christian they're brought back to God it's a truth in 1 Peter 3 Christ also suffered once for sins the just and the unjust that he might bring us to God what does that mean? When we come in faith to Jesus Christ, he makes his father our father, and we become his child. That means we know he loves us, we know he cares for us, we know that we can speak to him, we know that he hears us, we know that he'll answer. The Lord Jesus Christ becomes our elder brother. We belong, we are members of the family of God. And because of that, we become members of God's people here on earth, the church. But isn't it a remarkable change that now we belong to him instead of being without God and without hope in the world? Think of 1 John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. If the God of the universe is your Father and cares for you, that changes everything. If the Lord Jesus Christ, the Saviour of men and women, is yours, if he belongs to you and you belong to him, it changes everything. And the reality is he will never let us go. Legal life, spiritual life, relational life, it all leads to eternal life. Because finally when we pass into eternity, 
that life blossoms into fullness. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. What happens on the last great day when the Lord Jesus Christ judges the living and the dead? He says to his people, Come, you blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. There is no judgment. And the reason is the Lord Jesus Christ has given us life. Transformation. Beloved, we are now the children of God. It hasn't yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he's revealed, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is, 1 John 3, 2. We'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Christian people now, don't you long for the day when your hearts will no longer submit to temptation and deny your God? Isn't there something in you that wants to be free and that wants to be clean and wants to leave all this behind? Isn't it true that it's not enough for you just to be forgiven, as wonderful as that is? Because you wouldn't want to spend eternity in the presence of a God whom you despise. You want to love him and you want to worship him and you don't want to sin against him anymore. And thank God that that great eternity secured for us by Jesus Christ, is a place of holiness and peace and joy. Relational life. I desire that those whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, the glory you gave me before the foundation of the world. I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there you may be also. That that great relationship with God established in Jesus Christ comes to its fullness when we dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Don't you want to see him? And don't you want to be with him? And isn't it a joy and a delight to know that when you see him, there'll be no tutting and no disapproval and no coldness but he'll welcome you into his presence with great joy because this great day of his salvation has come and God will dwell with his people forever and ever. Why is the exclusiveness of Jesus Christ such a big thing in the Bible? Because it's only he who can deliver us from death it's only he who can take our condemnation. It's only he who can change our hearts. It's only he that can bring us back to God. The gospel is exclusive in its emphasis on Jesus Christ because a problem as big as sin needs a saviour as big as him. That's the issue. It isn't a matter of pride. It isn't a matter of arrogance. It isn't a matter of the criticism of others. It's the fact that the Son of God has come into the world to be our Saviour because nobody else could do it. And if he's come into the world to be our Saviour, he's the only one. I have one last thing to say to you. 
in John 5 and verse 40, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. It's only faith that can make this salvation ours. See, the Bible doesn't just teach the exclusivity of Christ. It teaches the exclusivity of faith. You have to believe in him if you were to receive and experience his salvation. Why is that? We can't earn salvation. It's something that Christ has had to do. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that deals with our sins, not our good works. Our good works can't die for us. It's Christ and it's Christ alone. Well, if he's done that, and if he's secured salvation for men and women, how does that salvation become mine? If it's all of Christ, how can it belong to me? He gives it in his grace, freely. So it needs to be of faith that we come to Christ to receive and we trust him as our saviour and we embrace him and lay hold of him and we look at him and we recognise he is the one who has secured life. If I stay where I am, I'm in death and when I die, I'll be lost. He's under no obligation to save me. No obligation at all. But I hear him calling and I hear him saying, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. I hear him saying, come to me and I will give you life. I hear him saying, if any man comes to me, from his innermost being will flow forth rivers of living water. And I look to the Lord Jesus Christ and I say, Lord Jesus Christ, if you will be my saviour, if you will do it all for me and take me just as I am, Saviour, I lean my soul on you. Take me, wash me, save me, make me yours. And you know what happens? He always keeps his promise. The one who comes to me, I will by no means turn away. I've got one warning for you. I've noticed a trend speaking with people in the last few years where people seem to think, okay, I understand that. So what that means is, I need to show God that I deserve to be forgiven. So I'll come to church and I'll read the Bible and I'll pray so that God will realize I'm serious and I deserve to be forgiven. You can't deserve to be forgiven. It's all of Christ and it's none of me. It's all of faith which simply means trust him. It's none of me. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. You wash me, saviour, or I die. That's the issue, isn't it? It's all of Christ because only he can deliver us from death and give us life. It's all of faith, because Christ's great salvation is a gift that has to be simply received. It's all of him. So let me ask you the question. Is this tragic verse still true of you? You are not willing to come to me.
that you might have life. Let me challenge that. The Lord Jesus Christ came from heaven to save. The work he did on the cross is a complete work. His blood can wash the foulest clean. Outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no life. There's no God. There's no transformation. There's no hope. There's no heaven. But in Christ, there's those things in their fullness. And Jesus Christ freely offers himself to you today. Tell me. Won't you trust him? Won't you receive him? Won't you cry out to him, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner? Won't you hold on to his promise? Won't you just come to him that he might receive you and that he might give you life? Let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that as you know us and everything about us, you would press on our hearts and minds the portion of this message that we need to hear. If we are believers, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that his salvation is full and free and everlasting. But Lord, if there are men and women who are questioning and who are struggling, in your mercy speak to them. Draw them to Christ and help them, Lord, really to trust him with their hearts. We thank you that your great saving purpose is at work in the world. And we thank you for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, become man to be our saviour. Lord, accept our praise and our worship in his name. Amen.